If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we began a series of messages just a few weeks ago that we titled Rebuttal, True Answers to Hard Questions. And we've dealt with some of the hardest questions we could think of in the last several weeks. We, we started with how do we know that God exists? And then we talked about how how come there's suffering in the world? Why, why doesn't God remove all suffering? And then last week, we began to talk about creation. Who created and how was the world created? And, and, and we sought to answer that question from Scripture. Today, I want us to focus on life. Who created life? How did life uh, come upon this planet? Where did we come from? Now, if you were to ask many scientists today, they would give you a one-word answer to that question. They would say evolution. And everybody's heard that word. We're all familiar with that. It's a theory, a scientific theory proposed by Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace in the mid-19th century. It was set out by Charles Darwin in a book that he wrote uh, that we're familiar with as On the Origin of Species. That's not the actual name of the book. We'll come back to that in a moment or two, but that's how, that's how we know it. And here's the theory. Here, here it is in a nutshell. Given sufficient time and random mutations and natural selection, all species can and do come from other more primitive species. So notice the three parts to that. It says time plus mutations plus natural selection. Now, if we begin with time, the, the, the evolutionist would say it's a great deal of time. In fact, they would say that it has been three billion years in the making. Little bit at a time over all of those years, evolution has given us what we have today. So it begins with time, then random mutations. Now, random mutations, when an organism reproduces or a cell uh, reproduces the DNA, the information in that cell is copied to another cell and it passes on life. But sometimes there are errors in that transmission. Sometimes it's not copied exactly correctly. And we call that a mutation. And there's some good mutations and there's some bad mutations. But a mutation is why occasionally you can find a four-leaf clover, right? A mutation is why I am such a good-looking man. I mean, some things unexpected just happen. That's a mutation. So sufficient time, random mutations, and natural selection. Now, natural selection, we used to call this survival of the fittest, means that when there's a mutation, when there's a change, if it is a good change, it will help that new organism be stronger and reproduce more, and eventually survival of the fittest that mutation will become a part of what that organism is. So that's, that's evolution. Sufficient time, random mutations, natural selection, and, and we have all of, all of life. Now, it's important in the beginning that we, that we show the difference between two different kinds of evolution, and this will be more important as we move on. But first, we have microevolution. Now, microevolution is when there are these small changes in an organism, uh, these would be equivocal changes that allow it to better survive in its environment. I think about things such as drug-resistant bacteria or a bird or a moth that may change colors uh, somehow in order to better survive in the environment that it is in. That is microevolution. 
Now, that's not how we get from one species to another. That's not how we get from, uh, from a few amino acids all the way to man. But that is one kind of evolution. Well, then there is macroevolution. Macroevolution is when these changes allow an organism to go from one species, one genus and species, to a different genus and species. And this is the kind of evolution that people suggest is how we have life uh, on earth today. Uh, it goes like this. It all began with a primordial soup three billion years ago. And from that primordial soup, uh, because of random mutations, we gained amino acids. From amino acids, we developed proteins. From proteins to prehistoric viruses. From that to single-celled amoeba, to shellfish, to invertebrate fish, to vertebrate fish, to amphibians, to reptiles, to birds, to mammals, to monkeys, to you. Okay? So, uh, simplified a little bit, but that's the story of evolution. Three billion years from some of these organic particles all the way to man. Now, is that true? Is that how life uh, has, uh, has come upon this earth? Does that really explain complex living organisms? Well, many, many people would say yes. They would say, listen, pastor, uh, we have the fossils. We have seen the pictures and we have visited the museums it must be true. Well, that's what I want us to, to discuss today. Let's, let's look in Genesis chapter 1, see the story the Bible tells. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And then if you skip down to verse 31, last verse in the chapter, it says, God saw that all he had made, that it was very good indeed. And the evening came and then morning and the sixth day. Now, just a few basic things we see here. First of all, it says God created man. He didn't create him out of some previous life form. He created him out of nothing. God created man. The second thing we see here is that man was created in the image of God. We'll come back to that in a few moments. And then we notice that the plain reading of Scripture, and we talked about timing last week, but the plain reading of Scripture is that this happened in just a moment. Because it says it happened and then there was evening and morning and the next day, this is a one day event. God created man. Now, let's, let's take a look at that by walking down the halls of the university and stepping into some classrooms and seeing what we can learn. I want us to look at evolution and I want us to look at it from the from the physics classroom, and then we'll go to the biology classroom, and then we'll go to the paleontology classroom and the anthropology classroom, and, and we'll look at it from these different classrooms just to see what we can learn about it, and then we'll come back to the Bible. Now, my goal here is not to answer every question. I'm not a scientist. Uh, my goal is not to win every debate, but I want to show you in these classrooms that this is not nearly as open and shut a case as so many people believe. So let's go through these, these classrooms. Number one, 
the physics classroom. And we're going to do a little math here as well, but the physics and the math classroom teaches us that the complexity of life is too great for it to be the result of random mutations. Now, we talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about the existence of God. We said that if you find in a cave a functional working pocket watch and you open it up and there are gears and springs and everything fits together, you would not conclude that that was the result of natural processes, right? You wouldn't conclude that some minerals were, uh, were, 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 you know, were underwater and there was some erosion and then there was some metamorphosis as the, as the plates moved around and then out came a watch. Nobody would conclude that. You would say there's evidence of a design so there must be a designer. This watch has a designer. And then in that message, we looked at the face of a baby. Were you here? Do you remember that? And we talked about the complexity in a little baby. Just amazing complexity, much, much greater than a, than a pocket watch. And we talked about how that complexity tells us that there has to be a design. Then there has to be a designer. And that designer is, is the Lord. And so it's easy to see that there's such complexity that it would be impossible for just some random mutations to end up creating these complex life forms. But let me explain it in a little different way. Let's say that you wake up tomorrow morning. Men, let me talk to you. You wake up tomorrow morning. It's very early. And you're going to go to the kitchen and you're going to have some breakfast. Your breakfast of choice is Cheerios. And so you're headed there. You're excited about your Cheerios. You get almost to the kitchen and you notice that the box of Cheerios has been knocked over somehow through the night. And you see that some of the Cheerios have spilled out. And so you get a little closer and you notice that not only have they spilled out, but they seem to be in some sort of pattern. And then you get very close to the Cheerios and you can see it spells something out. It says, take out the trash, exclamation point. All right, now what are you going to conclude from that? Are you going to conclude that perhaps the cat knocked over the cereal box and out came these Cheerios? Or are you going to conclude that your wife in some playful and some perhaps passive aggressive way is reminding you to take out the trash? Well, of course you know that your wife did it. Somebody did it. There is no way a box of cereal turning over could spell out with Cheerios that, that phrase. And you understand intuitively, even if you don't understand the theory of large numbers, even if you don't understand the, uh, the uh, second law of thermodynamics, you know just from intuition that you would never be able to create that pattern by random chance, right? How many times would you have to pour out a box of cereal before it would spell that out? It's not 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times. You could pour it out a billion, billion, billion times. It would never do that. Never do that. Because there are some things in life that are just so complex that random will not get you there. Now, life, our living organisms are much more complex than, than a message from a box of cereal. I'll give you just a couple of examples. The brain... I read this week, has 100,000 billion electrical connections. That's 10 to the 14th power. Uh, more electrical connections than all the electrical appliances on the face of the earth. There are 29 million people who live in the state of Texas. 
If all 29 million were electricians and every person could wire one circuit per minute and nobody took a day off and nobody went to the restroom, it would take us in the state of Texas six years, six months, and two days to wire up one brain. One brain. Yet our brain fits in a quart jar, operates for 80 years on 12 watts of power. There is such complexity in this world. No matter how many times you pour out the cereal box, you're not going to get the message. Let's talk about a more simple form of life, a protein. A protein's not really even a form of life. Uh, amino acids come together to create proteins, but then it takes a number of proteins to create a cell, even the most simple form of life. But one protein, I was reading this week, scientist Michael Behe says the probability of one protein molecule with 100 amino acids by chance being created, just by chance, would be the same as a blindfolded man finding one marked grain of sand in the Sahara Desert three times in a row. And that would just be for one protein. The most simple cell, the most simple amoeba has over 200 proteins. Now, a Darwinian evolutionist would respond to what I just said by saying that I'm dismissing the element of time. Uh, they would say, Pastor, listen, I understand that life is complex and I understand it seems very unlikely that, that this could happen by accident, but you don't understand we're talking about three billion years. Can't three billion years produce anything? Well, no, it can't. And, and there are some reasons why. I mentioned a while ago the uh, the law of large numbers and uh, the second law of thermodynamics. But let me put it in just plain preacher language. Over time, random makes things more disorderly. It does not make them more orderly. Does that make sense? If you have things that are organized and you just do random things to that, they won't become more organized. They will become less organized. If I have a a Scrabble box. Any of you play Scrabble? And, and I pull out some tiles in this Scrabble box to spell. I spell it right inside the box, you know, the cardboard box. I pour out all of the tiles and I pull up a few of them and I spell something inside the box. I spell Stephen F. Austin State. That's 18 tiles. I put them in order. 18 tiles. Stephen F. Austin State. And then I get the tiles that say University Lumberjacks. That's 21 more titles. So I put those tiles just in some random order in the bottom of the box. So in the top of the box, I've got Stephen F. Austin State. And in the bottom, I've got the 21 tiles necessary to spell University Lumberjacks. It's all right there. Now, I put the top on the box and I shake it for 10 seconds. I shake it. Now, you tell me, when I pull the top off that box, is that statement, is there going to be more of it there or is there going to be less of it there? Well, of course there's going to be less. I mean, you might find two letters next to each other that should go that way, or maybe three or four, but there's no way you'll find all 40 of those letters. It wouldn't matter how long you shook it. If you shook it for a day, a week, a year, a billion years, you would never spell that out. That's the second law of thermodynamics uh, stated in uh, Scrabble language. Uh, but things, as you add random to them, don't become more orderly. They, come, they become less orderly. And so to think that over a thousand years or a million years or a billion or three billion years that we would have the complex life forms just accidentally is, uh, is absolutely absurd. 
Let me, let me approach it from a little different way. Do you think the mutations, so when there's a problem in the copying of the chromosomes in these cells, do you think those mutations are generally helpful or harmful? What do you think? Well, the majority of them are either harmful or they don't do anything. When, when you just add random to something, you, you hardly ever make it better. If you were to take a rifle, men, and you were to shoot a bullet into your car engine and it were to rattle around just randomly in your car engine, is it likely to make your car run better or is it likely to make your car run worse? See, when you add a mutation, most of the time you have caused a problem. In fact, I read this week in the American Scientist, a peer-reviewed journal, uh, Dr. C.P. Martin of McGill University, he said, mutations are practically always harmful. They are never creative. On rare occasions when a mutation appears to be beneficial, it is really only undoing harm done by a previous mutation. Just as punching a man with a dislocated shoulder might possibly put his joint back into place. So mutations are negative. Now there are equivocal and unequivocal mutations and that explains our drug resistant bacteria and other things and that's beyond what we have time to talk about today. But I want you to see here the obvious. It doesn't matter how long you shake the box. Time is not gonna make things more orderly, it's gonna make things less orderly. Does that make sense? That's the reason why people lose money at the casino, right? I mean, you might win the first time around or the second time around, but if you continue to play, eventually your money is going to be gone. And if you continue to shake that box, you're not going to have more order. You're going to have less order. The math and the physics classroom tell us that macroevolution cannot be the explanation for how we have complex life forms. Now, Let's step into the history classroom, the history classroom. And we'll ask the question, are all scientists evolutionists? Is it true, as, as you've probably heard, that almost everybody believes in evolution? Well, that is not true. Let me give you a list. Michael Faraday, Lloyd Kelvin, Joseph Lister, Pasteur, Newton, Kepler, Bacon, Einstein, Sir William Ramsey, Nobel laureate physicist Max Planck, uh, Robert Jastrow, the founder of uh, U.S. Space Studies. All those people said or say, in the case of one of those, uh, that evolution cannot be the explanation. It cannot be. Einstein said this, of course, there is a massive intelligence behind the universe. The man is a fool who doesn't believe that. Now, you might say, Pastor, those men lived a long time ago. How have things changed since then? Well, listen, if anything, the evidence for evolution is less now than it has ever been. And I'm going to show that to you when we get to the paleontology classroom in a moment. But let me talk a little bit more about the scientists. In 2001, uh, PBS, the public broadcasting service, uh, had a documentary on evolution. And they said in that documentary these words, Virtually every scientist in the world believes the theory of evolution to be true. Well, some scientists heard that and they, they knew it didn't sound right. And so they wrote a statement. And the statement, the gist of it is, I am skeptical that evolution can account for the complex life forms that we have today. And they asked if some scientists were willing to sign it. 
A thousand scientists have signed it, more than a thousand, from institutions such as Harvard, MIT, Princeton, Yale, and London's Natural History Museum. Uh, you can look at the list online. I, I went through it this week. Uh, I know that uh, the smartest people in the world are people who live in Texas, right? And so I looked for Texas scientists, and there are dozens of people from Texas A&M, UT, Baylor, and even SFA. So you know that this is right. I'll give you some names. I don't know these people, but I want you to see these are real people, real scientists. Daniel Hines, PhD, geophysicist at Texas A&M. Joel Hetzer, PhD, statistician at Baylor. James Dickens, PhD, mechanical engineer professor at Texas A&M. John Burba, PhD, physicist and chemist at Baylor. Charles Vaheden, professor of surgery at Texas A&M College of Medicine. Thomas Milner, professor of biomedical engineering at UT. Dan Reynolds, PhD, professor of organic chemistry at UT. And it goes on and on and on. Well, what about Charles Darwin? He's the one that got this ball started. He's the one that wrote this book. Was he sure that evolution was the answer? Well, several comments that he made after the publication of his book uh, amounted to him saying that he was concerned that maybe none of it was true. Here's one of his quotes, to suppose that the eye, the eyeball, with all of its inimitable contrivances, seems, I freely confess, that the eyeball could be formed by a process of evolution. I, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. That was, that was Charles Darwin. As we leave the history classroom, what do we learn? That it is not true that most people in history or even today that most of the credentialed science people today say that evolution is true, that is simply not, not the case. Well, next, let's go to the biology classroom. We could spend a long time in the biology classroom, and we could look at many evidences that, uh, that speak against macroevolution as the answer for the origin of complex life. But I want to look at just one thing, one thing that scientists call irreducible complexity. Now, Evolution relies upon the fact that there have been very small, very tiny changes over a long period of time. Do you understand that? That an organism gets a little bit better, but just in a very tiny way, something that requires only one mutation, and then it gets a little better and a little better, and over billions of years, we finally get uh, some advanced form, form of life. And so I guess an example of this, and I'm making this up, I don't know that this is the way it happened, but it illustrates the process. Let's say in the, in the, in the Sahara, there, there are giraffes, and all the giraffes are eight feet tall, but there's not enough food for the giraffes, and so they begin to die out. The number of giraffes in the Sahara is going down because they can't get enough food. And then one day there's a mutation and one mama giraffe gives birth to a, to a baby giraffe that grows not to 8 feet but to 12 feet. Now there's plenty of food, right? Now you're 12 feet tall, there's plenty of food. And so this mutation is positive and now this 12 foot tall giraffe has more 12 foot tall giraffes who have more 12 foot tall giraffes and a few hundred years later there are no 8 foot giraffes, there are only 12 foot giraffes. Does that make sense? That's, that's evolution. And so it takes just, just one mutation and something good happens and then another mutation. The problem is some biological structures cannot be formed one step at a time. 
Let me explain this with a computer first, and then we'll talk about symbology. If you were to build a, a personal computer by natural selection, would that work? Could you, could you start with just one copper wire? And so you've got a copper wire. That's the beginning of a computer. And, and you know, your copper wire, it can't do much, but maybe it can add some small numbers. I mean, maybe it can play a, a Pac-Man game or something. And, and so then the next day you add another copper wire. And then the next day you add some silicone. And the next day you add some rubber. And the next thing you add some, some, uh, something else. I don't even know what all is in there. But, but a little bit at a time you build this computer. And every day you add a component, the computer is a little bit better. Can you, can you build a computer that way? No. Because if you have 90% of a computer you have no computer, right? I mean, you go home and cut your laptop in half and see if it will go half as fast or run half as many programs. It will not because it either has to all be there or it is of no value. And there are so many parts of life that are just like that computer that if you don't have all of the pieces that would require, by the way, thousands, if not millions of coordinated muta uh, mutations, if you don't have all of the pieces, then you don't have any of the pieces. So I, I read one book this week, Hallmarks of Design and Evidence of Purposeful Design and Beauty in Nature by Stuart Burgess. It, it, it's a book that just goes through a number of these structures that have irreducible complexity. And I'll, I'll tell you about one of those. The first 35 pages of the book, I didn't know that there was this much to know about a human knee, but the first 35 pages of the book is about how our knee works. And, and not just humans, but many mammals have a similar structure. And so a knee, as it turns out, is much more complex than most of us uh, would have known. Uh, for a human knee to work, there are four essential parts. This is not true in, in, in many joints, in many angles, but for a human knee and for some other uh, knees in some animals. There, there are four essential parts. They're called the four-bar mechanism. And if you don't have all four parts, it's worthless. It, it, well, three parts doesn't get you three-quarters of the way there. It's either all or none. And for each one of those parts, there are 16 unique and essential characteristics that must all be present and finely tuned. And so for the junction of two bones to become a human knee joint would require millions of mutations to happen instantly, simultaneously, fine-tuned, with no bad mutations happening at the same time, and there you go, you've got a knee. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the, the, the evolutionists have already told us that the only way the math works is if this happens a little bit at a time. But there are some structures you just can't build a little bit at a time. Perhaps the, the easiest one to see is the eyeball. The eyeball has so, so complicated, there's so many pieces, there's so many functions, and, and, and if you have half of an eyeball, you can't see anything, right? It, it's not that if you have half an eyeball, you're just a little nearsighted and things are fuzzy, but you get a little bit more and things are clear. No, it's all or nothing, right? You can't gradually build an eyeball. There's no way the theory of evolution would explain an eyeball, and even Darwin himself, I read you the quote a moment ago, said that the eyeball destroys his own theory of, of evolution. The problem for evolutionists is that some things just cannot be the process of one gradual change at a time. So Darwin said this, if it could be demonstrated 
that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would be absolutely absurd. Well, Mr. Darwin, you are right about that. All right, next, let, let's go to the paleontology classroom. We're going to have to visit this one quickly. Paleontology is the study of fossils. Most people believe that fossils, that that's the best evidence of evolution, but that is not the case. Uh, two things I want you to see about fossils. First of all, there are no transitional forms. So you'd think if if you started with this animal and it was very simple and then it, 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 later you had a more complex version and a more complex version and a more complex version until eventually you end up with this 100 million years later, you would think that you would have fossils for this one, you'd have fossils for this one, and you'd have fossils all the way in between. Those are the intermediary fossils. Well, guess how many of those we have? None. Darwin addressed this. He said, why then is not every geolog geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely uh, graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. Darwin said, I don't know why there's, there's not some links, and this is a problem. But then he gives a solution. He says, the explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. He says, just give it some time, people will find the links. Well, that was uh, 175 years ago. How have we done? Well, as it turns out, we have found thousands, tens of thousands of fossils since then, but no transitional forms. Rather than filling the gaps, the fossils we are finding are extending the tree. They're creating more gaps. Although one would not know this from a standard biology textbook, it is true that the fossil record today is even more at odds with Darwin's theory than it was when he proposed it. Darwin said, I can give no satisfactory answer. Nature may almost be said to have guarded against the frequent discovery of her transitional or linking forms. So Darwin's explanation is, well, maybe the earth is hiding them. One more thing about fossils, the Cambrian explosion. Have you ever heard of that? It's not a word that scientists use anymore, uh, but it's a, it's a good word. It's a good phrase. If you go down through the layers of the earth, every, every lower la layer represents, uh, scientists would suggest, uh, a longer period of go. And, and you know, there was a layer laid down and then a million years layer, later, another layer and another layer and another layer. So if you look at all these layers of the earth, it's like a clock, it, it, it walks you back in time. So what do you find fossil-wise? What do you find? Well, you find fossils, 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 fossils. And when you get to the Cambrian layer, you find fossils. In fact, you find fossils for every animal we know about fully formed in the Cambrian level. And then you go to the one below the Cambrian level, what do you find? Nothing, nothing. Scientists don't have any explanation for this because they're not going to say, well, there was a flood in Genesis chapter 6 because that would create all kinds of other problems. They have no explanation. Why is there everything in the Cambrian level and nothing in the one below it? So scientists call this punctuated equilibrium. And so this week, if you wonder what your pastor does in my spare time, I, I took a class, just a little online class, 
at the University of California, Berkeley on evolution. I wanted to, I wanted to hear it uh, from, the, uh, from the devil himself, so to speak. <laughs> and so the first half of the class, uh, it talks about how evolution happened over such a long period of time in these tiny little increments, three billion years. And it says that the reason why this is important to know is because, and it uses kinder language, but us stupid Christians will come along and say that it is mathematically impossible if you say it happened in a short period of time. So we're saying it happened in three billion years. Now, this dumb Christian believes it's mathematically impossible even at three billion years, but, but, but they say the answer to the mathematical conundrum is three billion years. It happened slowly over three billion years. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I continued the class, and then I got to the part about the Cambrian explosion. Again, not called that. They called it punctuated equilibrium. And here's what they said. They said, well, sometimes evolution just happens really, really fast. I'll, I'll quote it because I don't want to overplay my hand. It says, if evolution happens in quick jumps, we'd expect to see big changes happen quickly in the fossil record with little transition between the ancestor and the descendant. And so their answer for the, for the math problem is that it's three billion years. But their answer for the punctuated equilibrium problem is it happened really, really fast. And this is, you'd think, sharp people, University of California, Berkeley. If we go to the paleontology classroom, we learn that the fossils do not provide evidence, strong evidence for, for evolution. The next classroom, anthropology. We're going to skip some classes today. If you hadn't done that in a while, we're, we, but, but let's get at least one more. Anthropology, the study of the ascent of man. So if we, if we specifically now start focusing on man, how, how did man evolve? Uh, there are a couple of questions. The first question that we must answer is what about all the fossils? Pastor, what about all of these fossils that they have found of all these different people, these, these man-like prehistoric people that, that link uh, the, the ape or the monkey all the way to man. What about all of those fossils? How do you explain all of the fossils? Well, good question. First of all, the new scientist, again, a peer-reviewed science journal, says the main problem in reconstructing the origins of man is the lack of fossil evidence. All there is could be displayed on a dinner table. <laughs> so we're led to believe that there are warehouses full of fossils, but there's just... There's just a handful. And even these, while sometimes scientists, evolutionists, I should say, will make grand claims about these fossils, they, they don't support the claims, and generally they are found to be frauds in just short order. Uh, I'll give you some examples. And this doesn't cover every bone that they have dug up, uh, but give it some time. We'll preach this again in three years. We'll, we'll cover some more. But, but let me talk about three of them. The Nebraska man. So this, this fossil find, uh, scientists claimed, was the first higher primate found in the United States. This was the missing link. And in fact, you may be familiar with that old black and white drawing of, uh, of, some, of, of a creature that sort of looks like an ape and sort of looks like a person and the creature's wife, I guess. 
and he has a spear or staff or something. There are camels behind him. Supposedly, that's what it was like in Nebraska. They found this in Nebraska. The Nebraska man, the missing link. So what exactly did they find? What, what, what fossil evidence did they find to build this whole civilization upon? They found one tooth. That's it. One tooth. And it turned out years later, it was the tooth of an extinct form of pig, the Nebraska man, a great embarrassment for, for evolutionists. Well, then we can go to the Piltdown man. Now, the Piltdown man, uh, leading paleontologist said, it represents more closely than any human form yet discovered the common ancestor from which both the Neanderthal and the modern types have been derived. So this is it, the Piltdown man. And, and they, they built this diorama in a museum, uh, I think in Chicago, and they had, you know, a piltdown man. They, you know, they built him there. And they had a piltdown woman and a piltdown kid. And they were, you know, cooking piltdown hot dogs over a piltdown fire. They had the whole thing. The whole thing figured out you could go and you could see what this missing link was like and even how it lived. So how did that turn out? Well, after further study, they, they noticed that the only three, they only had three pieces, only three fossils to build all of this. Two of the fossils turned out to be teeth from an orangutan, and one of them turned out to be a canine tooth that had been suspiciously filed down with a metal file. Uh, the, I understand that the display is still there, but they no longer claim the Piltdown Man. I could give you a list of these. The Peking Man, discovered in China, just as Canadian physician Davidson Black was running out of research money, he found 14 monkey skulls, skulls. so 14 skulls of, of monkeys, but they couldn't be monkeys because when he found them, he also found tools and weapons. So these monkeys weren't regular monkeys. These were, these were monkeys that had tools and weapons, so they must be the missing link, right? But then they did further study, and they found out that the monkeys didn't use the weapons. The weapons were used on the monkeys, they had found an ancient Chinese slaughterhouse. The monkeys weren't the missing link. The monkeys were lunch. That's the Peking man. So what do the fossils say? There, there are no intermediary fossils between man and anything. There are Neanderthal fossils, but, but those, are, uh, those, are, those are apes. Uh, there, there, are no, there are no links. Well, the, the next question here in the anthropology classroom is, what about the pictures I think one of the most persuasive things that have confused people about evolution is just the pictures. Don't, can't you recall in your mind, and, and, I, and I should have provided this for the screen, but that, that classic picture that shows a monkey, and then he's standing a little taller, and then he's standing a little taller, and he's standing a little taller, and on the other end, you got the man standing erect. That proves it, right? That proves it. Evolution must be true, except that's just a picture. We don't have any of those fossils. We don't have any record of that. that. That's no more scientific than something a three-year-old draws. It's just a picture. Scientists don't even purport that it's uh, based on any kind of evidence, but it's still in every biology book, high school biology book you'll pick up. Some people have suggested that because things look similar, then one must have come from the other. You know, you, you got a monkey and you know, we, we sort of look like monkeys, I guess. I don't know. There's similarities. You know, I've heard people say that we share 99% of our DNA with a, 
with a monkey or a horse or I don't know. We share a lot of DNA with a lot of animals. And so they come to the conclusion, the unscientific conclusion, that just because there are similarities, then, then we must have come from those, from those other creatures. But there's, there are other good explanations for that. First of all, maybe there are similarities because we were all created by the same God. Thought of that? Or maybe there are similarities just because of the environment that we live in. There are just certain things our, our environment demands. If I go to your house and I admire your house, it's a great house, it's got a roof, it's got walls, it's got a door. I mean, much like my house, I've got a roof and walls and, and, and door. And so I notice that, that about your house. And then we walk to your backyard and I see a doghouse. And the doghouse has a roof and walls and a door. And it's more primitive. It doesn't have indoor plumbing. It doesn't have air conditioning. But, but it has some of the basic features that your house. So I could conclude that this is how houses started. And over the years, billions of years, they got a little bit better and a little bit better. And now look how houses have evolved. But would that be accurate? No. The reason why both houses have, have roofs is because it rains, right? The reason why both houses have doors because you need to get in. That's not about one coming from the other. That's about our, our environment. I would love to take you to the sociology classroom, but I'm out of time. So watch the pastor's show this week. Mark and I will go to sociology class. I uh, really would like to share what, what we learned there. But let's go back to the Bible classroom. The Bible says that man is created in the image of God. That means much. But, but I want to point this out. That means that, that we're special. We've been stamped with the image of God. We're not just the product of some evolutionary process, time and random mutations and natural selection. We're valuable. That, that, that's why we, we ought to love our neighbors. That's why we ought to stand against abortion. That, that's, that's why we ought to, we ought to love the, 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 the unloved. That's why we ought to give a, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Everybody is created in the image of God, so everybody is valuable. And you know how valuable? You know how valuable? God sent his son as a man, as a person, flesh and blood, to come and live and die to redeem us. Uh, God could have washed his hands of the whole affair. He could have said, listen, they've gone the wrong way. They've rebelled. And that could have been the end. He could have destroyed us. He could have, he, he could have abandoned us. But he said, no, they're created in the image of God. They're valuable. So God loves us, and he's made a way that we can have a right relationship with him. When God created you, he created a being that will live forever somewhere. Will live forever somewhere. You'll always be alive. You'll always be alive. And God loves you so much because you're made in his image that he's provided a way that you're forever could be with him in paradise. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, let me pray. Father, uh, we talked a lot of science and fossils and you know, in some ways that's important and in some ways it's not. But I pray you remind us today that we're not just uh, some creature at the top of the evolutionary chain. We are created in the image of God. And help us to know how important we are to you and how much you love us. And help us to know that you have made a way through Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. To bring us into right relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.